We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 7, 18, 19, and 25. And let me read it for you. (laughs) The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced, by which we draw near to God. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Thank you, Brad. Let's pray. Father, today uh, we just ask that you would uh, do exactly as the last song uh, asked for us. Lord, would you speak to us by your word, uh, teach us by your spirit. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We will be in Hebrews chapter 7 today. It's been a little while since I started chapter 7, so... Maybe a bit of a refresher for me, maybe for all of us. Uh, We've been going through uh, Hebrews and made it here to chapter 7. The theme of Hebrews in these first chapters is Jesus is better. So remember with me as we get into chapter 7, what's going on here and why is Jesus better? Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers likely just before 70 A.D., could be a little bit after, but likely just before 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple. Remember that in chapters 5 and 6, excuse me, the author of Hebrews tells us that the teaching he's going to share with us about Melchizedek is is a hard one. It's a tough one to understand. It's not made for spiritual babes. He says, he tells his readers to press on to maturity and try and understand what's happening with this story of Melchizedek and how it's related to Jesus. We treated 7, 1 through 10 the last time we were together, which was a few months ago, but we need to remind ourselves of where we left Melchizedek. Remember with me, Melchizedek in the 14th chapter of Genesis and Psalm 110, those are the two places he's mentioned in the Old Testament. And very quickly, the story of Melchizedek, especially for those who might not have been able to join us the last time. There are four kings that attack the region that Lot lives in. This is Abraham's or Abram's nephew. That is Sodom. So these four kings attack. Sodom, among other cities, is defeated. Lot and all of his possessions are taken away in the spoils of war. Abram hears this and musters the trained men in his household, about 300 of them, just over 300. He tracks down these four kings, defeats them in battle. This is hundreds of miles north, near Damascus. Uh, Defeats them in battle and heads back south for home. On his way, he meets Melchizedek in the Valley of Shavah, is what we're told. Uh, This is likely just outside of Jerusalem. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of war. And that is where we kind of leave that story in the Old Testament. 
In Psalm 110, we're given a bit of information. And today, as we turn back to Hebrews, the story of Melchizedek is interpreted for us by the author. We also find out why this king, King Melchizedek, why he's mentioned in only a few verses in Genesis and Psalms, but uh, he's only mentioned a little. Why is he so important? Why is there a whole chapter in Hebrews 7? Uh, last time we learned, if we could move forward to maybe, I think in slide four, this may be where we'll be. Yeah, there we go. And then one more. Great. What we learned last time about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, that's what his name means. He was a real person. That's what I would say. There were many who taught that he's an angel or that he's a theophany or Christophany, that Jesus showed up in the Old Testament. I think he's a man. I think he's a person, a real person, the king of Salem, peace, or the king of Jerusalem. That's another name that's used for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Priest of the Most High God, Yahweh. In Genesis, he met Abraham likely in the Kidron Valley, uh, again, just outside of Jerusalem, offered Abram bread and wine, and he blessed him. Jesus is a priest forever in Melchizedek's order. We learned that in Psalm 110. And then finally on this list, Jesus received his priesthood by the oath of God, the Father, in the same way that Melchizedek earned his priesthood, not inherited by birth like all the other Levitical priests or Aaronic priests. Okay, can we go forward? Great. And finally, this is from last time. We're finishing up last time still. Melchizedek had no mother or father, no beginning of days or end of life. Melchizedek is a priest perpetually, or he lives on, we're told, in those first ten verses of Hebrews. And my take on this idea, we look at those, and again, those were the surprising ones. Those are the most surprising ones probably in chapter 7. No mother or father, no beginning of days or end of life, lives on perpetually. Who is this guy? That's why they teach maybe an angel, maybe a Christophany. I don't think either. I think uh, my take on how that is possible. The author of Hebrews is talking about the revealed story of Melchizedek. He's not talking about the man himself. He's saying what we've been told in the Old Testament and what, we have to- what we've been told is, we haven't been told anything about a father or mother. We don't know who his father or mother are. Uh, we haven't been told anything about when he died, how he died, when he was born, where he came. We're not told these things. So in that way, we can reflect on this and say, Christ had some similarities to Melchizedek in this way. Okay, we can move on to that next slide. Thank you. <clears throat> oh. I thought I was almost done there. Two facts show that Melchizedek was the greater of the two men that met. Abram and Melchizedek meet. Melchizedek is the greater of the two men. Any Jew in the first century, any Jew in all of history who was committed to the Torah would say, are you crazy at the idea that anyone's greater than Abraham? But we have a couple of facts that told us that he is. Abram tithes to Melchizedek. The one who is tithed to is the greater. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. If you're giving a person a blessing, that fits in our society. Grandparents, parents, blessing their children, helping their children out. The one who is greater is the one who does the blessing. And then finally, Levi, the father of all of the Levitical priesthood, paid tithes to Melchizedek through his forefather Abraham. 
so to speak. That's what we're told right there at the end of Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. So here we go, moving on into verses 11 and 12. We're going to read this together. <clears throat> I'll be reading Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. Uh, actually, I'll pick up in verse 9. Uh, the last couple of verses from last time. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, he paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi's not born for hundreds of years, but through Abraham he paid tithes. Now verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest? to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still if a priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it's attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, that's from Psalm 110. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Stick with me here. It's heavy stuff. Verse 22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Here we go. Digging in. And we have to remember that we might not have the same struggles as a first century Jewish convert to Christianity. That, that is probably uh, likely, that we don't have the exact same struggles. The priesthood was of utmost importance in their lives. A first century Jewish convert to Christianity would have loved the priesthood, would be committed to the priesthood, would have the priesthood as front and center in their lives. The Levitical priesthood was all they've ever known. It was instituted by God 
And it was even said to be perpetual. In Exodus 40.15, I'm just going to read that real quick. Exodus 40.15 is one of the places where we're told that it's, it is to last. It is to continue. Exodus 40.15 reads this way. And you shall anoint them, the priests, even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me, and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout the generations. There's still pushback today, even from Messianic Jewish communities, so those who believe in the Messiah, saying that, no, this Levitical priesthood must continue. Um, and obviously from Jewish society saying, no, this Levitical priesthood must continue. Look, it says it's perpetual. It must continue. Hebrews 7 says something different. This is a challenge for them. For, for some of our study today, I'd like you to put yourself in their shoes. Go back to the first century, uh, where their experience is, uh, their, that's what they understand, it's what they know. So here in verses 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. But we have the Aaronic priesthood is what's being said there. If this was a perfect priesthood, the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, if this was perfect, if it could make a man perfect, nothing would have changed. There would be no need for another priest, another priesthood, or another law. Um. In parentheses in my in my Bible, in verse 11, it says, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. So the law is coming into question here as well. It's not just the priesthood. And uh, note too there, uh, yeah, if the Old Testament law and priesthood can accomplish a task, why should it be changed? Why should it be replaced? The law is subordinated to the priesthood. If you read through the Old Testament and read about the law and the priesthood, what you see is anyone who's trying to follow the law must come to the priest and make sure they're following the law appropriately. So the law is in subordination to the priesthood. So the fact that the priesthood is changing is key. Verses 13 and 14, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. So we're talking about Jesus here. He doesn't belong to Levi. He can't be a priest in a first century Jew's mind, a Jewish person's mind. Uh, he can't be a priest. He's not in the tribe of Levi. They're consistently recording who's in the tribe of Levi. Uh, one of the pastors I saw studying this said, there were actually priests in the book of Ezra who came and said, we are in the tribe of Levi. We should be priests. And they're told... No, we don't see the record. If you can't show me the record, you can't be a priest. Jesus isn't in the record. He's not in that genealogy. He's not from Levi. So in the first century Jewish perspective, he can't be a priest. This is impossible. If anyone from another tribe other than Levi drew close to minister as a priest... There were some ramifications. Anyone? Uh, let's read Numbers 18, 22, and 23. I'm not a big flipper usually when I teach, but today I am a little bit. 
so bear with me. Numbers 18, 22 and 23 read this way, The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, for they will bear sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their, their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among your, the sons of Israel they shall have no inheritance. So verse 22 tells us, if they come near again, anyone but the tribe of Levi, they will bear their sin and die. That includes those from the tribe of Judah. It is a problem for anyone else to come near. So there in verse 13, in verses 13 and 14, it tells us it doesn't fit. This doesn't fit the law. The one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. It's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. Although we saw that he spoke something, they are not to come near Judah nor any other tribe. It's a problem. Verses 15 and and moving forward, and this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, um, the question there, the, the way that verse starts is a little bit confusing. What is clearer still? It starts with, and this is clearer still. I think what's going on there is he's saying that there needs to be a change in priesthood and a change in law, or one or the other. He's speaking to that fact. This is clearer still. These things are changing. Why is it clearer still, going forward into 16, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Uh, I'll read 17. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what's clearer is that there needs to be a change. There was going to be a change. Um, It's kind of interesting that it's listed there at the end of 16. I felt like I was reading maybe my four-year-old's words. Um, he would probably choose, if you say, what superpower do you want? He might choose that. An indestructible life? Well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good superpower. Um, so what's going on here with an indestructible life? If you, if you look at the Greek, what's going on there is it's just saying a life that doesn't end, a life that is endless, a life that is eternal. Um, so Jesus is chosen based on his eternal nature and based upon the oath of God. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It is attested of him. The fact that God made Jesus priest forever with an oath, it's another guarantee that the law and priesthood must both change. They have to change. That's what we're being told, 15 through 17. Again, we've got to put our shoes in the uh, a first century Jewish reader of this text. They don't necessarily want the change. And remember, these believers are considering going back. They may go right back to temple sacrifice, following the high priest, listening to what he says, and away from their good high priest, Jesus, who saved them. That's a consideration. Verses 18 to 19. For on one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 
The law and Levitical priesthood have been set aside. That's what we're told in 18. There is a setting aside of the former commandment. That's the law. Because it was weak and useless. What? That's about the law? It was weak and useless? I'm confused here. We've got to talk about that. Uh, and the, verse 19 continues, for the law made nothing perfect. What? Well, the truth is the law never made one person perfect. The law never perfected a person. The law and the priesthood are inseparably bound. If one is set aside, the law, they must both be set aside, the law and the priesthood. And then on the other hand, if we could go forward, Keaton, thank you. The law was beautiful and good. How is this possible? Um, this isn't always taught in, uh, in churches like ours. The law was beautiful. The law was good. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't taught here. I'm just saying in churches similar to ours, Bible churches, sometimes we teach the law was so heinous and so horrible, and now we have grace. Okay, there's, there's definitely some truth to the now we have grace part. Was the law so heinous and so, so horrible? Um, if, we read, if we read David in Psalm 119, anywhere in Psalm 119, I just chose kind of some random verses from Psalm 119. But Psalm 119, verses 97 through 99 say, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. They are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Does it sound like David is talking about some heinous thing that's separate from the nature of God? It doesn't. Oh, how I love your law. I just want to meditate on it day and night, or I do meditate on it day and night. The law of the Lord is good. It was a privilege to be chosen to receive the law. The Jews were chosen, the chosen nation, to receive God's law. No one else got to receive it, and it was a beautiful thing. But then in John 1.17, uh, we've got another passage that is maybe sometimes taken out of context. John 1.17 reads this way, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we read those as like an antithesis of one another. The law, Moses, oh, oh, that was a bad time. It was horrible. Grace and truth through Jesus. Oh, it's happy. This is good. That's not the way the Greek reads. The Greek reads, the law was given through Moses. This is good. But grace and truth, so much better. It doesn't read good and bad. It reads good, incredible. Good, incredible. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Grace is better. Drawing near is better. That's what we see in verse 19. The law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Why the draw near language? It's used often in Hebrews. Why this drawing near language? I know some of you are answering that in your head, and that's wonderful. Can we go next slide for me? Thank you. Uh, the whole of the law is done away, but now we have the law of Christ. Oh, maybe I, maybe I forgot. Is the next slide related? Okay. Okay, yeah, I got those mixed up. I'm sorry. Thank you, Keaton. 
Our primary goal, I would say, now this is maybe different than has been heard. Uh, It's been different than I've heard most of my life. But I think our primary goal is to draw near to God. And in that, to become more like Christ. I think here, and then we're going to see it again in 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near. Um... We often use, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we often use language about salvation uh, that we find in God's Word, and that's good, but, um, uh, okay, you were saved, okay, you were paid for, okay, you've been adopted, okay, you're a son, okay, Uh, numerous terms that are in God's Word. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, you've drawn near? I don't think I ever have. Oh, you're one of those who has drawn near to God. Oh, you're a Christian. I don't think I've ever heard it used that way, but I think that's the way our writer is using it here. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near. He's not saying the people who have been saved and now they're drawing near, those are the ones he'll save forever. Uh Uh-uh, that's not what he's saying. Those who have drawn near to God, who have believed, who have come into the faith, he is able to save them forever those who have drawn near. So are we of those who draw near? The whole point, um, oh yeah, a quick quote there by Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist. Seek only the blessing of his presence. That's in a recent book I've been reading of his. Um, And I think if the idea there is that we're trying, we want to draw near to God to become believers, and we want to continually draw near to God in our lives, day in and day out, moment in and moment out, That is a beautiful goal to have. It's not the only thing that we're told to do in Scripture, but it is a beautiful goal to have. The whole point of the priesthood is to help people draw near to God. And he's telling us we don't need those priests anymore, and now we get to draw near to him because we're priests, because we're chosen, because we're accepted in, and we don't need a priest anymore. And now with the priesthood set aside, we don't have to go through a priest. It doesn't have to be the high priest drawing near once a year, paying uh, the penalty, covering, covering our sin. No longer needed. Uh, maybe back, Keaton? I don't know. <laughs> the whole of the law is done away with, but now we have the law of Christ. And I would say that that's what's happening here. When, when the law is being set aside, what's coming in is a new law. The new law that comes in is the law of Christ. We see Paul reference the law of Christ a couple of times. I think the law of Christ is at least somewhat related uh, to the new covenant, the new commandment that Jesus gives us in John thirteen thirty four to love one another. We are to love God. We are to love one another. Um, the old law is no longer law today. Uh, those of us who want to hold on to following rules to please God which rules? The ones that are set aside? Or the ones that you've made up? Or that I've made up? I do it. That's not the goal anymore. Checking boxes following the law. Maybe back forward to again, Keaton. Thank you. Okay. We'll get into uh, the rest as we finish here. So, verses 20 through 22. Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, so God gave an oath to say Jesus is to be 
a high priest, inasmuch as it is not without an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So the Old Testament priests, the Levitical priesthood, they didn't even get an oath. No oath of office. No God coming down and saying, okay, our new high priest. It's solemn oath. Now you're in place as high priest, and as long as you can live, they don't get an oath. They're just born into it. Somebody dies, they take over. They die, somebody else takes over. This passage, 20 through 22, is saying, oh, so much more solemn to have the oath of God on your side, saying, Melchizedek, you're a priest forever. And then to Christ, like Melchizedek, through my oath, you're priest forever. <clears throat> they became priests just by lineage, but there was an oath for Melchizedek and Jesus. The Lord has sworn... And then in verse 22, Jesus is better. Verse 22, so much the more also. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So we're seeing Jesus as better again. He brings with him something so much better, the new covenant. Uh, We don't have time to get into it. Obviously, that's a whole other sermon. But Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 introduces it for the first time. The new covenant, the beauty of the new covenant in Christ. Maybe next slide. Thanks, Keaton. Verses 23 and 24 continue. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The Samaritans, uh, Kelly and I got to visit when we were in Israel, uh, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans still have their lineage. They still have their priesthood. They still have their slaughter of uh, goats and lambs at the... Um, the right time of year in the spring. We got to meet the high priest. I got to meet the high priest of the Samaritans. And they're following. They think, okay, the Jews have their high priest, but we think the actual uh, lineage comes through the Samaritans. They take the Pentateuch, excuse me, they take the Torah, yeah, they take the Torah, the Pentateuch, and they believe the first five books of the Bible, and they say, this is through us. It's not through the Jews. And they still have their high priests today, and they think they can trace it all the way back, time of Christ and before. And so we met the high priest, and guess what else? We met the next guy in line, who, as soon as this high priest dies, who's about 80, as soon as he dies, we met the next guy in line. And they told us, we've got the next seven ready. As soon as this one dies, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready. They're prepared because what we see right there, on the one hand, they existed in great numbers because they were prevented from death by continue. They couldn't continue. They've got to be ready for the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. Sometimes a new high priest every couple of years, even uh, for the Jews, not just the Samaritans. It works the same. Death, life and death work the same for both, right? It's so different with Jesus. It's so different with Jesus. He forever holds his priesthood permanently. That's verse 24. So the author gives us some double confirmation there. He continues forever, and he holds his priesthood permanently. So different from the old priesthood. Then verse 25. 
Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this is the reference I made earlier, out of order. We talk about Christians who are saved, those who are forgiven, those who've got new life, those who are born again. Oh, now we've got a new child of God. Do we talk about those who are the ones who draw near? Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near. That's the term used of us there. Those of us who have believed are the ones who draw near. Let's go next. He is able to save. This is uh, in the Greek. This is in the active tense. I think this is key. Therefore, he's able to save. Jesus is the one doing the saving. We do not save ourselves. Yet, if you continue forever, those who draw near, that's in the middle or passive voice. That means it's done by the believer. Anyone who uh, wants to teach that we have no part in salvation and we don't have a will and it's just, God just does everything and we have no choices, I think this is a verse to take them to and say, wait a second, we are those who have drawn near. We, we have a will. We believed in the moment we believed. Who does the saving? He does. It's so clear. We have to believe. We have to draw near. And he does the saving. It's clear in the Greek there. He is able to save forever those who are being sanctified. Yeah, continue, perfect. He is, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. When he came to earth, he primarily functioned as prophet. Said so many things about what was prophesied in the Old Testament. He prophesied many things about the future. And now he's serving as priest, our great high priest. As 25 says, he's able to save forever those who are drawing near uh, he's making intercession for us. And then someday, uh, not that he's not in control, but someday, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, life is not going to look as it looks today with a perfect king ruling from Jerusalem. It's going to be an incredible place to live. We're going to see for a thousand years, although there is sin referenced in that thousand-year millennium, very little sin happening in that time period. Christ ruling with a rod of iron, so the very little sin will be punished, but many who are living hundreds, it sounds like, maybe even the full thousand years, things will change with a perfect king in Jerusalem. And he'll be um, serving as king in that day. His intercession for us isn't about an argument. So it says there at the end of 25, he always lives to make intercession for them. It's not about an argument. He's not there arguing with God or, you know, Satan sitting in the Holy of Holies arguing with Jesus consistently. That's not the idea. The idea is he's making intercession. That means he's in heaven. He's in the Holy of Holies saying, oh, but my sacrifice has covered this. And my blood has paid the price for this believer who's in this time, in this struggle, in this sin, in this, oh, I've paid the price. I've paid the price. The focus is him, his sacrifice, his blood, his righteousness, interceding for us based on who he is. And we have that imputed righteousness. Verses 26 and 27. Almost there. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, 
separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself, and I'll finish 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So there in 26, it was fitting, wow, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Are you kidding me? With who we are? With the imputed righteousness of Christ now? It is fitting for us to have such a high priest. And this is the only possible way for salvation to occur. That we have a high priest who was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. In verse 27, he has no needs to be met. Uh, He does not need daily, as those old high priests did. Like the old high priest to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, he has no needs in that way to be met by any other means. And then in 28, the oath came after the law. I think this is key. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the Lord, which came after the law, the word of the oath, excuse me, um, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. We had the law put in place by God as an eternal or perpetual, at least, is the terminology used, olam in the Hebrew, a perpetual high priesthood through Levi. But after that, God came to David in Psalm 110 and said, a different priesthood. We're turning the clock back to when Melchizedek's priesthood. And that was the first priesthood, the better priesthood. And I'm replacing this Levitical priesthood, which failed. Uh, Not failed for his purposes. I'm not saying it failed in that way. Uh, but was like verse 18 and 19 say, the former, because of the weakness and uselessness of that law and that priesthood. So in a way, it failed, and we needed a different one. The oath came after the law. We see that oath in Psalm 110, 400 years after the giving of the law. Perfected for the role as high priest. Jesus was perfected. That's, again, that hard language that we saw in chapter 5. How was Jesus perfected? He was perfect. That's true. He was perfect. He was perfected, having faced temptation and continued in his perfection. Now he can understand our temptation. He can understand our weakness because he lived as a human. So perfected in that way. So my questions as we, as we get toward the finish here. Are these first century Jewish believers not like us? Former Jews, now believers, well, that's not like us, but what maybe most of us, I don't think. Uh, Ones who are considering going back to the religion of their youth, a religion where their sins can be, oh, that just lost my place, okay. A religion where their sins can be tangibly covered over year to year. Every year they can feel like, oh, yes, covered over. I saw it. It happened. He went in there. He came back out. He didn't die. Oh, covered. That's what they were considering going back to instead of Christ. They want to. uh, They want to do it. They want to be part of this payment process. 
They want to play a part. They want to pay for their own sins. They want to bring the sacrifice. They want to save themselves. Are we not like these believers? Do we want to do something to please Jesus? Do we want to pay for our own sins? A few really good weeks where I'm doing things really well and doing things God's way, and, and he's going to feel better about me. I'm sure he'll feel better about me after I have a really good, you know, three months. Man, oh, yeah, now he feels good about me. Oh, it's good to be a part of this process. Paid in full. Oh, wait a second. We live in the day of uh, the new way. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The key change about the new way is clearly expressed in this chapter. Life is no longer about the law. We don't have to approach God through the priesthood. They have both been set aside. We don't check the boxes in order to please God anymore. Don't replace the Old Testament law with a law of your own creation or a law of someone else's creation. Instead, pursue the law of Christ. Love God, love others, especially the brethren, in the way that he loved us. Because that's what he says the new commandment is, to love in the way that he loved us. That is sacrificial. We are those who draw near. Intimacy with the Lord is on the table every day of life for the believer. Are you picking it up as you wake, as you walk out the door for work or school or whatever it is that you're walking out the door for? How's your drawing near? If you're here today and you have never drawn near to God, now's the time. If you have drawn near, and if you do know Jesus, would you respond to me the way that David responds in Psalm 27, verse 8? We did a, uh, I'm the volleyball coach at Calvary, and we did a devotional this week with Emmaus when we went up to Emmaus. So the girls uh, got to do a devotional with the other team, and the young lady on the other team who led the devotional uh, turned to Psalm 27, and as we read, this just stuck out to me. Psalm 27, 8 reads this way, When you said, God, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Draw near to God. Um, Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for... uh, teaching us about Melchizedek through Hebrews chapter 7. Without Hebrews 7, I wouldn't understand very much about that man and then who Christ is and the similarities to Melchizedek and priesthood and how he came in that priesthood. So thank you so much for revealing this. Uh, Lord, would you teach us? Would you help us understand? And would you also, um, as you draw us, Would you help us in our drawing near? Thank you for strengthening us to draw near daily. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.